That's pretty shocking. And many of us have had shocking news before. When we, what we see in our passage here is Jesus teaches something that amazes the disciples and actually literally shocks them and the people standing around. We're in Mark chapter 10. We've been studying verses 13 through 31. And this passage was recorded a very important lesson that Jesus wanted his disciples to understand. This, the point of this passage here and the point of Jesus teaching on that day was this shocking truth. It is impossible for a person to earn eternal life by human means. And Jesus taught no person, no person can earn God's grace, can earn God's favor by anything they do, which shocked those who listened. Most religions in the world, if not all religions in the world, teach and have taught that you can gain merit with God through your religious deeds and your moral works. And so two weeks, two weeks ago, we started teaching that Jesus actually countered this teaching. And we studied that Jesus first illustrated it. If you look in verses 13 through 16, Jesus illustrated this point with children. And the first truth we learned was that eternal life is impossible for you to have unless you come to Jesus like a helpless child. And what a wonderful illustration Jesus used. He brought children in front of him or invited them to come to him. And he, he used them as an illustration of a person who must be dependent receivers of God's grace. And he said the only people that are going to be with him in the kingdom of God are those who are receivers. In fact, look in verse 15. He says, truly I say to you, as children are surrounding him, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into it. So notice the key word there is receive. And infants and toddlers receive from their parents. They're dependent for their physical life. And those who come to God must be dependent on him for spiritual life. Then a rich man came up. A rich man who seemed to have it all. He was religious. He was moral. He had authority, probably in some type of religious synagogue. He seemed to have it together, but this man didn't. He was blind to his own sin and his own need for Jesus Christ. He thought his own self-righteousness and his own self-effort could earn him eternal life. And, and you see that question, you see that point in the question he asked. Look in verse 17. It says in verse 17 that, he was setting out on his journey, that's Jesus, a man ran up to him, knelt before him, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this man was a perfect example of a person who had his own idea of how to go to God, but he was wrong. I mean, think about the contrast between Jesus, God in the flesh, and this man. This man thought his religious efforts and following his Ten Commandments could get him to heaven, but he was standing before the holy God. And nothing he could do could earn him anything in God's, for God's favor. It's impossible 
to have eternal life, the second point we learned last week, unless you repent of your sin and of your self-righteous efforts. And so we talked last week about what does it mean to repent. Jesus says you need to come to me, which means you need to turn from your own way and turn to Jesus. And repentance is a change of mind and belief, which results in a change of direction of life. And so Jesus says, repent and follow me. So look down in verse 17. Let's just read through this passage and think through this story. Think about what Jesus was teaching. Verse 17 says, and as he, that's Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him, knelt before him, and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Remember, Jesus was saying, listen, God is only good. You're calling me good. Therefore, Jesus is accepting the claim as the good God. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Which wasn't true, right? What the, the pride there of that statement. Verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said, You lack one thing. Go sell all you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And here's the one thing, come and follow me. And last week we learned that the main imperative in that verse there, in verse 21, is follow. Follow me, which is the call that Jesus has for every person and for this man, which first means what? You must turn from your own way. And so what does that look like for this man? Well, look in verse 21. He says, go, sell, give, and then follow me. And so repentance for this man meant that he would confess his sin. And what was probably one of his most outstanding sins, I guess beyond pride, was probably greed, right? And here's a rich man who loved money and he loved his things more than he loved God. But also this man refused to, to let go of the things that he trusted in, his own efforts, his own resources, and he refused, therefore, to follow Jesus Christ. So we must repent and turn from our way and follow Jesus. And let me ask, before we go into this next part, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Let me ask this question. What does it look like for you to turn from following your own way and trust in your own idea of how to get to God and follow Jesus? What does that look like for you? And then the next point is the one we're going to talk about today. And that is an eternal life is impossible for you to have unless you completely follow Jesus Christ. Unless you completely follow Jesus. Jesus Christ. So what does that look like? Well, I think the, the next number of verses here, verse 23 through 31, teach us what this means. So look down in verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. I'm sorry, I forgot to go to verse 22, didn't I? I skipped a verse. Go to verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And why is that? Why is it difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Because they love to hold on to the things of this earth. Because they trust in their own resources. And honestly, if we were to be completely frank, this man who is rich was nothing, is, is not rich compared to us, right? I mean, the, the things that he had doesn't compare to anything to the things that we have today. I mean, a rich man in that time is a poor man in our time, isn't he? In America, that is. Think about the contrast between this man and Jesus. What does it mean to completely trust in Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, it means you must trust the power of Christ to save you. You must trust the power of Christ to save you. Here's a rich, religious, moral, upright, at least in the eyes of the people around him, man, standing before Jesus. I mean, this man held on to a couple shekels of gold, but he was kneeling before Jesus who had it all. This man had power within a small group in a synagogue, but he was kneeling before a man, before God, who ruled over the entire universe. This man tried to follow some rules to make him good enough with God, but he was kneeling before the man who made the rules. And the rules are based upon his own perfect character. This man was going to live for a few years. He was going to die and be separated from God forever. But he was kneeling before God himself, who is eternal. Jesus is the I am. And he was kneeling before the man who could give him eternal life. This man was trying to save himself. But Jesus was there before him, the Savior of all who would believe. So just think of the contrast. Consider how exceedingly weak this man was in light of the omnipotent power of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus standing before him says, listen, stop trusting yourself, your resources, your efforts. Follow me. But he didn't. He was disheartened. And so look down in verse 24. Jesus says, or the Bible says, and the disciples were amazed. They were shocked at Jesus' words. But Jesus said to them, again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? So that's not just for the rich, but actually it's difficult for everyone. In fact, not just difficult, but impossible. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So now everyone's kind of understanding, yeah, that's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a, of a needle. Verse 26, then they were exceedingly astonished. And he said to them, and they and, and said to him, they said to him, I'm sorry, they said to him, who can be saved? And so they're standing before the one who can save. And so what does Jesus say? Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and we followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. 
But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's ask God to, to bless the rest of our service here. Father, I ask as we go into this last part of this passage that your spirit will help us to understand the scripture. The natural man does not receive the things of the spirit, but God, those who are spiritual, those who have the spirit of God here, we can if you help us to understand. So please bring that to our our minds and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. The key verse I really believe in this passage is verse 27. With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And particularly right here, he's talking about the salvation of your soul. And Jesus was saying, to follow me means you realize you cannot save yourself. You are weak. You are helpless. You are totally lost. And to follow me means you trust in the power of Jesus Christ to do the impossible, humanly impossible work of saving your soul. Now, where have we seen this phrase, all things are possible with God before? Where in the scriptures is that? The last time I can remember was in Luke chapter number one. This is when the angel Gabriel was speaking to Mary. And Mary was a virgin girl, very young, maybe 13, 14 years of age. She was engaged to Joseph. And the angel says, you're going to have a baby. And she says, that's impossible. How can that be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. So what was the impossible work of God here with with Mary? It was a virgin conception by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that is impossible with man, but it's not with God. It's possible with God because of the power of God the Holy Spirit, who is God. And how interesting that the next time we hear that all things are possible with God, that promise relates to the spiritual birth. So Jesus was born, he was conceived by the miracle of the Holy Spirit, and you can be regenerated. You can be given new life by the miracle of the new birth, the Holy Spirit giving you life. And that's the power of the impossible, the impossible power of the Holy Spirit. And so you see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, the Bible says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, what does God do in our life? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So there's the spiritual Holy Spirit power of spiritual birth. Jesus was born into the world by the supernatural power of God. In a similar way, in order for you to have spiritual life, you must be spiritually born again. I mean, just think about the impossibility of Jesus being born to this world, but how possible was only how it was only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. And think about the fact that you, that Jesus was resurrected from the dead by really an impossible 
feet coming from death to life, but it was possible by the Holy Spirit. And then when a person turns from faith and self to following Jesus, he grants them the humanly impossible gift of the new birth by supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we all probably in here are thinking about a story where Jesus talked about this with another rich man. Remember who that was? was Nicodemus, right? So Jesus was with Nicodemus, another man who was a ruler, another man who was probably very wealthy for that time. And this man wanted to know how he could have eternal life. What does Jesus say to him? The Bible says this man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a good teacher, or you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with them. So a very similar approach to this rich man. And then Jesus says to this man in verse number three, I got it on the screen up there for you. Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So you can't enter God's presence unless God supernaturally gives you new life. So think about Jesus with this man, Nicodemus, and Nicodemus responds back in confusion. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now think about it. That was actually a real question he was asking, right? We read that and we're like, that's kind of foolish to ask that kind of thing. But he's saying, how can you have two births? Well, Jesus was talking about the physical birth and also the spiritual birth. So Jesus answered and said, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's the physical birth. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's the new birth. And notice this in verse 7. Do not marvel. Don't be shocked by this, Nicodemus, that I say to you, you must be born again. That word born again is a very interesting word. It's an aorist, which means it's a point in time, an action that's a point in time, and it's a passive verb, which means it's happening to you. God must work in your life at a point in time and, and have you give you spiritual birth. Being born again is an act of God upon your soul. And we call that, in biblical terms, we call that regeneration. It's the idea that God makes us spiritually alive by his word, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you're given that life, you could say you're also given the gift of salvation, which is kind of like a big package, right? When it's your birthday, if you're a little kid at least, you like to get big packages, right? And some of those packages take a long time to unpack and to enjoy. And God has given us a wonderful gift, the gift of salvation. It's a big package. You can see in, in Mark chapter 10, the disciples ask, who can be saved? So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about salvation. What's the answer to that? Only a person who's saved by God. Only a person who has God's special work of regeneration, of, of giving new life by his grace. So God must give you spiritual life. And when that happens, there's so many amazing things that happen. You are forgiven of all your sin, past, present, and future. You are declared righteous. You're adopted into his family. You're granted all the promises that he, that he has for his children. And you have, at that moment and forevermore, the promise of eternal life. Eternal life in his presence. You're saved. We could say it that way. And then beyond that, the Bible says in Hebrews 7.25, that he continues to save us. 
So he gives us new life. He saved us, gives us this package of salvation. And throughout our life, we can be confident that we are continually saved. What do I mean by that? Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, he is able to save. And that's an interesting verb, too. It's a present tense. It's something God is actively doing. Present tense, active. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. So throughout our life, there's this idea that he preserves us by his grace. And he also is sanctifying us by his grace. There's regeneration, there's sanctification, which is the idea that he's making us more like Jesus Christ by his word, by his spirit, by the spirit of God. And then at the very end of our life, we get to experience something called glorification, which is the idea that that's God's final change to make us like Jesus in body and soul by his word and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's honestly, there's so much more that we could unpack with that, but that is called salvation. And that salvation is given to us through the work of God, his grace, every generation. So how does a person receive this impossible gift of salvation? Well, it's interesting when Jesus was teaching Nicodemus, the very end of that passage in John chapter 3, Jesus says this, whoever believes in the Son, that's him, has eternal life. When you turn from trusting your own means, your own religious ways, and you believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you have the gift at that moment of eternal life. Now, when does eternal life end? It never does. So when you're gifted eternal life, it doesn't ever go away. It's forever. That's why we believe that a believer is secure in Christ because he's gifted at that moment eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So if you decide I'm not going to repent and turn from my own ideas and beliefs in my way, I'm going to continue going that way. I'm not, in some sense, going to obey the Son and believe in Him. The Bible says the wrath of God remains on you. And that's what we see with the rich man. That's what the rich man did. He walked away from the Lord. And and sad, and sad to consider that this man had the wrath of God remain upon him. So completely following Jesus means you trust in the power of Christ to save you. It also means... That you are motivated by Christ and his gospel. Look at verse 28. Peter says, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. So Peter, the spokesman for the group, points out, you might say the obvious here. Look at what we've done, Lord. Maybe a little bragging here. Maybe just a little bit matter of fact. Like this is, we've done it. So what about us, Lord? And actually what Peter said was true. They did leave all. To follow Jesus. In fact, would you real quick flip back to uh, Luke chapter 5 and just see this account? Luke chapter 5 is the account where they, at that moment, left all and followed Jesus. So Mark, and then the next book is Luke. Luke chapter 5, Jesus is preaching next to the Sea of Galilee. He's actually standing in Simon Peter's boat because he was a fisherman. And he was speaking to a crowd. And then in verse 4 of Luke 5, 
The Bible says, And when he, that's Jesus, had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. You Here you see Peter trusting that Jesus had the knowledge that was greater than his own. Verse 6, And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so that they began to sink. And when Peter saw it, when he saw the power of God, when he saw the wisdom of God, he fell down at Jesus' knees and he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Notice the contrast between this rich man who fell down before Jesus in pride and pretense. And here Peter says, Wow, I am sinful, Lord. Verse 9, And he and all who were with him were astonished. So a lot of people were shocked in the Bible, weren't they? At the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. What was Jesus doing here? He's calling Peter to follow him and his mission that he had. In fact, in verse 11, Peter does that. And they, and when they had brought their nets to the land, or brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They forsook all and followed the Lord. And notice what Peter said was true. They left all and they followed Jesus. And what motivated Peter to do that? It was Jesus and it was his gospel. Jesus was preaching, repent and believe the gospel. And they saw the power of, of Jesus Christ and they believed, you know what? I'm going to follow that guy and I'm going to believe the good news that he preaches. In fact, go back to Mark chapter number 10 and you will see that Jesus reiterates this kind of idea when he says that they are to follow him and his gospel. Look down in verse 28. The Bible says, And Peter began to say to him, See, we've left all and followed you. Remember that, Lord? So Jesus then goes into verse 29, and he says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or lands or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. What should motivate a believer? What motivates a believer? For my sake, that's Jesus, that's your relationship with Jesus Christ, and the gospel. Peter and the disciples followed Jesus, which, which meant now their decisions they made were based upon really two motivations. How can I live my life in relationship to Jesus Christ? And how can I proclaim his gospel? You know, when you see a couple that's not married, and, but or you see a, a, young, uh, a young couple that's starting to date, I should say, something changes in their motivations, doesn't it? When they go to the store, now they go with that person. And you might see them maybe at Aldi or you might see them at Costco by themselves. But sometimes they might go there for the purpose of being with that person, right? When you start dating someone, if you're in one of those budding relationships, your motivations change. 
And when you become in, come into relationship with Jesus Christ, your motivations change. And now you're motivated by him and the mission that he has for you. Before we kind of go into more of this, let me explain that, the, that may be clear. This is not the way a person is saved. This is the result of the work of Christ in your life. The reason why you pursue Christ, this is the reason why you pursue his gospel, is because God has supernaturally saved you. You're trusting him, and, and the power of the Holy Spirit is being worked out through your life, and his power continues to work in you and through you as you continue to follow him. So this new motivation for living comes from the supernatural power of Christ within you. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, what should motivate every decision you make every day of your life is Jesus Christ and the mission that he has. And the contrast here is clear. Here's a rich man who is motivated and his decisions were made based upon how he can gain more wealth, how he can gain more prominence. A follower of Christ no longer makes decisions to advance his own kingdom. A follower of Christ no longer lives for the pleasure of the temporal world. But a follower of Christ makes daily and long-term decisions based upon these really two questions that I put on the screen up here. For my sake in the gospel, or how should I live for Jesus Christ? How can I follow him by faith? And then secondly, how does he want me to spread his good news? And the answers to these two questions will not be easy in light of this world. The answers to these questions will cause you to turn from yourself and from what maybe you think is the comfortable life that you want to live, to sacrifice some things that might be difficult to sacrifice, and to follow Jesus, but to receive the joy and delight of following and living for him. This passage was actually, frankly, a little difficult for me to study this week. And it's a very emotional one for me. This was the passage that really God used in my life to help us as a family decide that we should take a step. And I was out in South Carolina, and I was a pastor out there, and I was enjoying the church I was in. And I was in a comfortable position out in South Carolina. We had a nice house. And again, I, I've said this to you many times. People will ask me, like, why did you leave South Carolina? And and people in the community, almost, it's almost every week. If I just talk to anyone and tell them where I came from, they're like, why would you leave South Carolina and come out to this way? And, and it wasn't because of a problem I had out there or any bad situation. We loved our church, and we were loved and still are. It wasn't because of housing our finances. I loved the house we were in. It wasn't because we wanted to be Hollywood stars, although we wanted to meet a couple, but, or because of the politics in California, definitely not because of that. We were content in that area. But there really were two motivations. As I studied this passage and I saw those two motivations for my sake and for his gospel, it started to make me ask myself the question, what does living by faith look like for me in my life? What does Jesus want me to do with my life? And then also, how can I use my life in the greatest way possible to spread his gospel? And honestly, as we meditated on that and I thought about that, the Lord kept directing my heart to say, Ben, I think God has another step for you. I can remember driving down the road with Dana in the car and us talking about these things. I can remember at night sitting next to our, um, in our room by our bed and praying together about these things. And then coming to that day 
and we made the decision to say, this is what God wants us to do. And it was a hard decision. It was not an easy path. The steps of faith are, are difficult. I mean, he says in there, he says, it's with persecution, right? There's difficulty that lies ahead. But I would say this, is that there's always the joy of the Lord, and actually, there's something even better. Because when you give up the houses and lands and fathers and brothers and sisters, what does he promise after that? What does it say in verse 30? That he has something even better for you. Now and in the life to come. But first, let's just focus on what we are leaving behind. Look down in verse 29. He says, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake in the gospel. So following Jesus means the things of this earth are no longer our primary motivations. Verse 29, you see two categories of things a disciple might leave behind. One category are the places that we dwell, and the other category are the people we dwell with. So the places we dwell are houses and lands, and the people that we dwell with are brothers, sisters, fathers, and children. I think I should pause here to make sure that I'm clear that this does not mean that you should forego your responsibility as a husband or a wife or a father or a mother, right? We shouldn't, I remember a lady one time that was homeless that came on the property here and I was talking to her and she said, yeah, I'm following Jesus. I, I have children at home. My husband, I left them to follow Jesus. Like that isn't, no, that's not right. That's not the, the scripture is not teaching that. In fact, if you look up in Mark chapter 10, we studied that a couple weeks ago. It's like, Jesus says, leave your father and mother, be joined to your wife, become one flesh. And there's a new family formed and a new commitment. And you got to keep that commitment. You got to stay married and you got to, have oneness in the marriage. So this is not a call to give up your family responsibility. What he's saying here is that following Jesus means you allow him to control your motivations and your life mission. He's saying you cannot allow earthly things and earthly relationships to control your motives and mission. It must be Jesus and his gospel. And how many people in our world look to those really those two categories to find meaning and direction in life. I mean, how many people don't follow Christ because they fear the rejection of family? How many people think that they will be happier once they have this house or once they have this possession only to find that those things can't really satisfy? How many people pursue money and power and position in the hopes that, that those worldly treasures will give them more joy like this rich man right here only to find out they still leave you empty. And we can allow, we can be tempted, I should say, to allow the desire for houses and lands or the approval of friends or the fear of family to be our primary motivations instead of Jesus Christ and instead of his gospel. And I think we must think about this for ourselves. What does that mean for us? Like, How can we be tempted? How can we be tempted to be driven by the desire for things? How can we be tempted to be driven by the desire of other people? What, what does motivated by houses and lands look like for each one of us in California, in Simi Valley? What does being motivated by earthly relationships look like for you? And Jesus wants you to live your life in light of eternity. So follow Christ means have your decisions be motivated by the fact that 
It's for the sake of Jesus Christ. It's for him. And following Christ means that you live your life for his mission, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we think about this in the grand scheme of life. It's like, what should I do with my life? You know, I'm 18 years old. I'm trying to, and that's good to think about that, by the way. But I think actually he's speaking about the daily decisions that we make. Am I going to live today for Jesus and his gospel? I mean, how am I going to live today in light of eternity? How can I advance his gospel in my life today? Yesterday, we went to the parade, which was a lot of fun. We wore these Lighthouse Bible t-shirts, and we had a sign, we passed out cards. And, but honestly, I had to get up early on Saturday morning, and really early. And as I woke up, I thought, I don't want to get out of bed. And in fact, I actually had this thought, like, I was actually kind of mad. I'm like, I'm grumpy right now. And I was thinking in my heart, I was thinking, what do I have to do this today? I don't, I don't even know if I'm even ready for Sunday, you know? And, and then I started thinking to myself, okay, why am I doing this again? Like, why are we going out there again? And really the Holy Spirit uh, just kind of like moved in my mind to think, Ben, why are you doing what you're doing today? And I thought to this, I thought this, I thought one thing, I thought, what if you hand a flyer to someone? What if they come to church? What if they hear the gospel and get saved? Would that be worth it? Are you doing this for Jesus or yourself? Are you doing this to advance his gospel? So I got out of bed, crawled, fell, whatever you want to say. And I went to Dana and I said, I'm pretty grumpy right now. Can we pray together? <laughs> and we did. And it changes your perspective, right? It's like it changes the reason why you get up in the morning. And I think this is, you know, maybe this is a little sample of what really should happen every day of our life, to ask ourselves the question, why am I going to do what I'm going to do today? Like you're a teacher or you're a stay-at-home homeschool mom, and why do you teach your kids? Like what motivates you to do that? You go to work. Why are you going to work? What motivates you to do that? You're a teenager, and you're in school, or you're in sports. Why do you do that? Why are you even here today? Like, why'd you show up? And is it really because you want to live for Jesus? And are you asking yourself these questions? How should I live today at school or work or at home? How can I live for Jesus? And, and how can I spread the good news of Jesus Christ within the context that he has put me? Completely following Jesus means you trust in the power of Christ to save you, you're motivated by Christ and his gospel, and you enjoy the inheritance of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother, quite a list here by the way, right? Or children or lands for my sake in the gospel, who, and then notice the inheritance of Jesus, who will not receive a hundredfold now. In this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. When you follow Jesus and you loosen your grip on earthly things that you think will bring you joy, Christ promises that he will give you 100 times more than you had before. That's a pretty good return on your investment, isn't it? And when will this take place? Look at verse 30. When will it take place? Now in this time. Now what does that mean? 
Jesus promises that he will give me and you a hundred times the blessing now and in the age to come. So what's he talking about? Well, I think verse 29, he's clearly talking about leaving earthly possessions and family. In verse 30, he's speaking about receiving your spiritual possessions and your spiritual family. So who are these new brothers and sisters and mothers and family? Well, I'm not going to have you turn there, but if you would go to Mark chapter 3, you could see Jesus talks about this. In fact, his mother and his brothers came up to him and they said, hey, your mother and brothers are out there. And Jesus says, oh, let me teach you who my mother and brothers and sisters are, who are my family is. In verse 33, he said, who is my mother and brothers? And he looked around in the circle at those who sat about him. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, what was he saying there? He's saying that God has given us a spiritual family. And what is that spiritual family? That's the church, right? The church, the blessing of the church is 100 times greater than what we had before. So the church are God's people. When we as God's people come together in true love and commitment, we experience the joy of the inheritance of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that God's inheritance, so Jesus Christ's inheritance for you is this right here, and also in eternity, but right now it's the church. Church, uh, The church is such an important part of the Christian life. Next week we start church membership classes. Church membership is a way to say, I'm a part of this family right here. I'm covenanting with you all to follow Christ. Like, I'm, I'm clinging to you for my spiritual health and the Lord for my spiritual health. And I'm, I'm coming together with you to advance the gospel. And I would say this, is that a year later from coming out here, I'm so thankful for our church. Like, we talk about it all the time. God has fulfilled the promise to us and you guys. We're so thankful for that. We love you guys as a church. The joy, there we go. We're not really good at clapping as a church. So if we're going to clap, we really got to give it out there. Okay? <laughs> okay. I'm not condoning you clapping for what I'm saying. I'm just saying, like, if you're going to do it, let's just go for it. Okay? Okay. Look at verse 30. He says, you'll receive a hundredfold now in this time. And then he says, the very end of that, he says, also with persecutions. Do you realize the inheritance of Christ also means we suffer with Christ? We like to flee problems, don't we? We see a problem with someone else or a problem in our life. We're like, how can I get out of this? How can I run away from it? But actually what's interesting is in Romans eight seventeen, Paul writes that we, if we are children, then we are heirs. If we're the children of God, then we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also might share in his glory. And according to this verse, we share in the sufferings of Christ now and will share in the glory of Christ later. So the inheritance we enjoy with Christ is the church, but also involved in that is suffering. There's suffering that's involved in that. So that shouldn't shock us when that's a part of our life. But we can praise God because in verse 30 it says, and also the inheritance of Christ is what? 
in the age to come, it's eternal life. You get to experience that forever life in the presence of Jesus Christ. The problems of this life are only temporary, friends. And soon we will all pass. And we will be in eternity. And we can look forward to that. We should look forward to that. We can look forward to an eternity with Jesus and with each other. In eternity, we will praise Jesus that he saved us by his power. In eternity, we will praise Jesus for empowering us to serve him through difficulty. In eternity, we will praise Jesus for his grace and his mercy. In eternity, we will be with him forever. Amen. The wonderful gift of salvation and eternal life in Christ. It's impossible for us to earn this, to get this on our own. It's impossible for you, but not for God. God can do the humanly impossible work of salvation for you, my friend. And if you have not experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ, let me invite you to come to him like a helpless child. Repent of your sin. Turn from your own way, your own self-righteous efforts, and follow him. Trust his power to save. Be motivated by him and his gospel. And look forward to enjoying his inheritance. Let's pray.